This is the Athletic NFL. And now, a conversation with the Athletics Mike Sando and former NFL GM Randy Mueller. Welcome to the Athletic Podcast. I'm Mike Sando, senior NFL writer for the Athletic, selector for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, entering my 23rd season covering the league. Hard to believe. Joined today by former NFL Executive of the Year, Randy Mueller. Randy's got more than 30 years in the league. He's also worked in the Alliance of American Football, XFL. Football's in his blood going back to his days playing quarterback at Linfield, right? Linfield, right? <laughs> well, you're going back, Mike. That's yeah. going back. Yep, yep, yeah. yep. <laughs> um, I don't know if I had you in my first quarterback tiers, but I think you would have fared well. Um, this is our third session together, Randy, doing this, and we're looking forward to a good season. Um, we've got four topics we want to hit today. Uh, we're going to lay those out now, and we're going to dive right in. First is this NCAA situation with uh, you know the Big Ten and the Pac-12 saying they're out. The SEC, Big 12, ACC still in for now. Uh, we're going to offer our thoughts, opinions on that situation. I think a natural segue from that will be just the follow-up for the NFL. Um, very interesting to talk to Randy about that because he's been obviously in the NFL making decisions how to evaluate, and has also recently been in the XFL, which could be uh, you know involved in some of this too. Um, our third item is near and dear to my heart. It's the Pro Football Hall of Fame adding a slot for coaches, just for coaches, the next four years. So in the past, to get into the Hall of Fame, a coach would have to compete against players. Now there's this little lane off to the side. So I've got my criteria for, for coaches, what I th- how we think we should measure them. Randy's got his, and we've got ideas of who we think should go in. So, And then finally, I think we're going to close, Randy, with, uh, with some thoughts on Howard Mudd. You know, Howard was one of the great offensive line coaches ever. People forget he was also an all-decade player at the position in the 60s, and he took a spill on his motorcycle and is, is really facing a tough road ahead. So we're going to wish our best for, for Howard and, and maybe share a story or two on him. With that, let's get into this NCAA thing, Randy. What's going on? (laughs) Should we be surprised, Mike? I mean, it's just more chaos, right? I think ever since this coronavirus thing hit our lives, we we have all been shaking our head and to just say, you can't make this stuff up. And obviously with the news coming out where some of the big five conferences now are, are electing to push football off to maybe the spring, maybe, you know, to 2022. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I guess the two takes I had initially when hearing the news uh, come from the Pac-12 and the Big Ten uh, the other day is that I heard different stories and different lines of communication coming from same schools. It was really confusing to me. Um, The line of communication within these universities, the president's saying one thing, the coach is saying another thing, players on a totally different platform. It just, it it added, it added to to me, uh, just to the confusion. It was all over the place. And I, I, what it took me back to, and I, I think this has kind of been my theory maybe with life and maybe uh, that's debatable, but um, I think you have to consider the source and you have to consider the agenda of the source. I think you can get a doctor to say anything that meets his agenda and whoever's paying the bills is usually that that's the case. I think you can get coaches to say certain things if it meets their agenda. And obviously presidents have agendas too. So I think all the information, and you can take this back to the coronavirus in general, I just yeah. think it's all agenda-based information, and that's probably why we can't wrap our arms around it, because we can't get authentic views from anybody. 
I've been so frustrated by that through the whole process, Randy. And I think, you know, covering the NFL could be frustrating to uh, follow just how people use stats in football, right? But you and I, after many years in the game, sort of know what passes the smell test statistically, right? We And I think so many writers have gotten better with that, right? We can We can take the data from a football game or from a football season, and you can read really intelligent reports that, Eight out of ten people who follow the league closely would say, you know, that's really interesting to me. And I've, I have felt the whole way through with the with the virus. Number one, people don't know as much about it. It hasn't been around a hundred years like right. like NFL, right? So we don't have right. the information. Uh, and then two, like you said, there's so many different people with different agendas trying to spin it a certain way, and no sort of commonly accepted uh, way to present data. Uh, which I think also presentation of data is a tricky thing for journalists in general. Uh, it's really hard to get good at how to make sense of it. And then you have different states with different uh, singing different tunes, the CDC with different things, the president's over here, his, Fauci's over here, the media's over here, the players are over here. It is almost disorienting. Um, and I was like, I was reading our Andy Staples today in The Athletic, uh, had this great paragraph, I thought just about how the SEC and Big 12 and ACC are still in this and the Big 10 and Pac-12 are out. He says, it's important to note that within the SEC, league presidents face a different kind of political pressure than most of the colleagues in the Big 10 and Pac-12. And the SEC, also most of the Big 10 and a significant portion of the ACC, most state leaders want their schools to play. Yeah. And because state leaders decide who sits on the higher education governing boards and how much money public schools get, University CEOs face pressure to keep those governors and legislators happy. Hello, isn't that what you're saying? No yeah, it's, it's just agenda based. I think we can start with the premise that football is more important in the South. That, that I don't think we can argue that. No Their doubt. priorities are totally different. We don't see that out here on the West Coast. We don't see it as much in the Midwest. But in the South, football is king, right? And so does yeah. it surprise you that the ACC and the SEC are going to play through no matter what? Of course yeah. not. And again, it's priorities and agendas, and, and it's not good for our mental health status to try to sort it all out for this long a period of time, but we're in uncharted waters here. We're into this thing six months, and we still don't have answers. And we sure as hell aren't getting them from the NCAA, by the way. This governing <laughs> yeah. body is not yeah. is useless. I mean, there's what, no... What, yeah. Wait yeah. a second. Is that That's crickets I hear. In my, <laughs> I haven't heard a word from Mark Emmert, who I don't know if he really has. I, I guarantee you there's an agenda at work there, too. So, you know, who knows? Oh, it's just brutal. There's no leadership there. There's no direction. And so we've got, like you said, all of these different factions pulling in different directions. In the end, um, I think if, if these three, if the SEC, Big 12 and ACC go on, I think they can still have a playoff, probably. I mean, I think they still try to do it. But I sort of feel like one or more are going to be out too. And then that might force the hand of, the, of like the SEC could be the last holdout. Um, do you think, what do you think happens? Do you think we're, this is just all going to fall apart and we're not going to play? Well, I think a couple things. I think you're probably right. The SEC will be the last holdout. And when they determine what they're going to do, then we'll hear Mark Emmerich jump in and, and, and make his statement, of course, that the decision's already been made. So I think it's going to be hard to hold any type of a championship, any type of a tournament at the end of the season when you got half the teams that aren't going to play till next spring. So it is going to be a mess. Um, it kind of leads us into the next thing. Are they going to play in the spring? And if so, what does that do to the calendars of TV, of, of the NFL, uh, the whole bit? I mean, it's. It, 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 I think eventually it's going to be hard 
for the SEC people and the ACC people, and, and I guess the, the Big 12 in general, they're kind of caught in the middle, so to speak. I think it's going to be hard for them to play. For their people to say, hey, this is no risk to our students, um, this extra uh, heart initiative that's come out now with some of the athletes uh, who have tested positive for COVID having, when they, when they do heal up from COVID, now that's an issue. I just don't see how anybody can turn their back on that. So I, I, I think agree. in the end, it's going to be hard. I agree. And I think it's really easy for, for us in our lives to talk about risks and what's an acceptable level of risk, right? And as an individual, you sort of have that freedom to a large degree. Um, when you're making decisions for others and there's liability involved, it's different than in the NFL where, where the players are making a lot of money, the, the owners are making money, and they can come together and make a decision calculating the risks. I think in this case, it's a little bit more of you've got these schools that are, uh, that are state institutions in a lot of cases, right? I mean, there's a different level of accountability. How do you, do, how do you coordinate testing uh, if those tests take away from your state tests, right? If, if we have a certain number of state tests and now oh, hundreds or thousands of them are going to, you know, UCLA or US, you know, or whatever these uh, state institutions are, I think that's a, that, that's a different thing in the pro, uh, in, in the college level from the pro. And then also, uh, we talked about last night, if there's not kids in classes, how do you put them on the playing field? You know, I sent emailed you today. I think UCLA is planning to have eight percent on campus classes. Well, hello. Yeah, no, I agree. There again, there's agendas based there as well. But you're right. The testing devices themselves are a total. I mean, that's a whole nother podcast right there. How do yeah. athletics and at, at these big universities? How do they step in front of frontline workers who still can't get tested as often as they should have? A nursing home in in North Idaho uh, should have some priorities on testing. You know, so it's crazy until that is handled, and that's way above our pay grade. I think it's going to be hard to roll these giant football programs out because as we know, they can't be bubbled. There's no bubbling on campus and football is going to be a different thing. And like you say, the college kids, and, and this may change with what you read nowadays, they are um, governed by a union. They, are, they don't have the, the collectively bargained rights that the pro players have. So they, the pro players have agreed to everything that's happening in the NFL. Obviously in college that hasn't happened yet, but it sounds like that's around the corner. I don't know. Well, I wondered uh, with the Pac-12, you know, the players have been more organized there. And, and now without a season, I wonder if that's just throwing a wet blanket on top of it. I don't think that's the driving <laughs> force of why they're not playing. But I, I think it's in the minds of these athletic directors who and the NCAA. They've got this golden goose and the players really, you know, they're getting a scholarship and, and some great yeah. camaraderie. I'm not saying it's not nothing, but um, <laughs> there's no, a lot of money yeah. they're not getting. And not to open up a whole nother can of worms, but were there many people from the SEC on that list of, of wanting to uh, demand this or demand that? It's been known for years that they're already getting paid some money. So those players, those players in the South, what the priority, we already said that priorities are different yeah. in the South. I don't yeah. think it's even arguable the benefits that some of those players are receiving and have for years that we don't see in the West. The Pac-12 yeah. does not do that for their players. So yeah. it, there's, a, there's a different class of of, of athlete that's being recruited and taken care of depending on the campus you're on. Yep, no doubt about it. Well, that leads into our second item today, Randy, and the impact on the NFL. And I, I just, you know, that's going to be a fascinating thing of how would you, let's just put your GM hat on here, yeah. you know, and you've been a GM multiple times in NFL. And uh, 
AAF as well. If what are you talking about now internally? I mean, to to even try to have a good read on players if there's not going to be film. Right. Well, I think the only film you're going to have is 2019 film, obviously, if they don't play. So the, the first thing is everybody's going to be playing from the same deck. So you're going to have 2019 film, you're going to have 2018 film, and those are the two seasons you're going to have to draw from if we don't play any ball. The only exception to that is if somebody were to jump in this fall window where there's no college football, like we read the other day, a spring league, or maybe even the XFL. If somebody were to jump in and and the XFL gets their ducks lined up and say they play a 10-game season in a bubble all together in two Texas cities, I'm just saying, and maybe these college players that were going to come out anyway, now they get paid to play 10 games and ready themselves for the NFL. That changes the evaluation process as well. But if, if, nobody, if there's no football played, you're going to have to go on old film, 19 and 18 film. And the collection of the off-field information really get, becomes an issue. Because right now, they're, the, the NFL teams and staffs are taking Zoom calls from colleges, from conferences, trying to gather information on the, on the prospects. And that doesn't mean gather information to know if they can play or not. It's character stuff. It's injury stuff. And that stuff is most, most of the time better served in person. On a Zoom call with 50 scouts, you're not going to glean a bunch of information, that's for sure. Because nobody wants to out, out front uh, admit to anything. So usually those, that information is gathered behind closed doors. So that's going to make a difference as to how things are operated going forward as well. Yep. And, you know, I think the NFL probably likes the current setup with, you know, uh, the, the college system and the draft and, and and just would be fine moving forward with that. But I just feel like we're, you know, we're at uh, the precipice of something here, or at least moving close to it. We, we talked about, you know, the players organizing with rights. There's so much money in college football. That's a debate that's not going away with what should players deserve, right? I think that's going to be much more talked about. The players now have their own voices. It's not just the head coach. The head coach now has to listen to the players. Kirk Ferentz has to fire his strength coach. That would have never happened back in the Woody Hayes days when he could do whatever he wanted and no one could say anything, right? So there's a different shift that way. And then if you said, like, if an XFL-type league were to come in and get players to um, play there um, and fill this void... Could we see, I kind of think we could see and are going to see eventually just a little bit of a shift in the way business is done because it is such a business between high school and, and pro for these college players. And if the, if the NCAA isn't going to fill that void, could somebody else? Yeah, I think you're right. I think these players stand to, to benefit from it. Um, they're going to all obviously have to be on the same page to, to do that. I think... Um, I've never been one for paying players and turning them into pros, but I also know there's, you know, we can't stick our head in the sand and they, they deserve something for their efforts for sure. I don't see any reason why these players, and I think this has already been legislation passed on this, I think in California, where they can get rewarded for their likeness, for selling autographs, for, for doing public appearances and that kind of stuff. I don't think it's the, it's the crazy companies that uh, are going to back these players and go away from their, um, college institutions sponsorships and all that it's going to be more the a little bit of the nickel and dime stuff that i think players should get i think there should be a stipend i think they should receive what they can get so i think there's a lot of questions and you're right we're on the prep prefacist of 
this all coming out. Now, whether that gets a pause button now and gets picked up again next spring when football starts again, I don't know. But it's definitely something that's going to have to be thought through. And maybe that's when we hear Mark Emmerich. He, t- he takes a beating for, for not piping up, but maybe he's working on a bigger plan that some of us uh, need to be quiet and listen for. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm going to hold my breath on that. But, <laughs> um, you know, I have shifted more towards um, the paying of the players and being more comfortable with it. I, I just feel like the money's gotten so big yeah. that um, it's got to go somewhere. Now, the, the schools will say it largely goes back into to finance, you know, obviously pay for the football program and pay for a bunch of other stuff. But I think there is a case to be made for a lot of these these players. This is their window when they're almost most va- as valuable as they're going to be. It's, it's hard to think of it that way. Most of us are much more valuable 20 years after uh, – after we're um, out of college than, than in. But because the value is so great of college football, um, it is a window, I think, that they have um, a stake in and should get more from the problem they have is that the players turn over every year. And so they're, right. you know, you don't have, you're not going to have labor leadership for, right. that's, you know, for 10 or 20 years. But I think, I think things are changing to some degree. It feels different to me. So. Yep, I agree with that. I think time will will soon bear out that they're going to get some rewards and what level is the really the thing that's up for debate. Yep, yep. Randy, before we move on, here is a word from Indochino. Let's hit our, our third topic here, Randy, which is the coaches uh, in the NFL are now getting their own category for the, the Hall of Fame. And what that means is typically... In the Hall of Fame, there will be five modern era uh, players inducted. So anyone who hasn't been out more than 25 years, and it's really hard for coaches to get in through that slot because those five slots also have to account for the coaches. So if you're, let's just, you know, if you're Mike Holmgren or Mike Shanahan or one of these guys, it's hard to compete against Peyton Manning, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. they don't get in. So for the next four years, we're going to be able to have – you know, a side lane for coaches to go in. It's kind of exciting for me, having been on the panel for, I don't know, 10 or 12 years, to, to be able to really dig in and research who should get in. I've got sort of a template of um, what I think, you know, should be good criteria for coaches. It's not just did you coach a long time and win a lot of games. What are your initial thoughts? Then I'm going hit, to hit you with my template. Yeah, I think I, I'm very happy to hear that this category has come up. When you brought it up to me a couple of days ago, I was thrilled to hear that. There's a lot of coaches that I think are worthy of the Hall of Fame that you never hear even get mentioned because, and again, not to take anything from, away from the players because the players are all what it's all about, but they have no chance to get in, like you say, nestled next to a, a, a you know Peyton Manning or, or, or any of these other guys that are, have gone in player-wise. Um, but I think there's two categories for me anyway, there's the wins, which is obvious and you can count up the number of wins. And then there's also the Super Bowls. Those are the two criteria for me that you've got to have either or. And I think the ones that have both are already in. So you're going to have to select, I think your next grouping from either total wins. And you mentioned a couple guys in that category or, or just the fact that they've been in the Super Bowl uh, multiple times, uh, win or lose, um, those have set them apart as well. And, and that's an interesting group. There's probably six or eight guys that, that are going to get a great debate on uh, whether they're worthy of Hall of Fame numbers or not. And, and I don't think you can always use the, well, this guy's already in as the 
standard bearer as the flag bearer because you, you cannot assume that all of them are in for the right reasons. So uh, yep. it's time, it's place, it's there's a lot of things that are involved with this, as you know. And uh, I'll let you bring up the names who are worth yep. discussing. But yep. I found the list very interesting, and I'm hoping that the, the six or eight guys all get in at some point that, that I think are worthy. All right, here's the guys who are in the top 20 and wins and have won a Super Bowl and are not in the Hall of Fame, okay? Bill Belichick, he's going in the Hall of Fame. Yep. Andy Reid, I think he's now going in, got the Super Bowl, right? Yep. Uh, Tom Coughlin, Mike Shanahan, Mike Holmgren. I think all those guys probably get in, do you? 100%. I totally agree. I said it when Coughlin won his second Super Bowl. You got a Hall of Fame head coach. And uh, the fact that he had turned around or started the Jacksonville Jaguars from scratch and took them to, to the edge of getting to a Super Bowl in one of the early years tells you the guy knows what he's doing. Plus, he's just a flat-out good coach. I agree. Shanahan, back-to-back Super Bowls. I mean, how could you not? There's there's guys in the in the league right now or in the Hall of Fame right now that haven't won two Super Bowls. And Mike Holmgren taking two different teams to Super Bowls, one of the better coaches that, that I've been around in my 35 years for sure. So I think all those guys get in. So here's my sort of template. I I love sort of coming up with, um, you know, a process, right? I mean, so much of this could be just any other debate on talk radio, but I like to have a process for um, how do you evaluate the coaches? And some are just no-brainers. Bill Belichick's got 273 wins and six Super Bowls. We don't have to talk about it, right? If you're in one place for a long time and win a bunch of Super Bowls, it's not a debate. But when I look at some of these uh, other guys, it can be hard sometimes in coaching to – uh, divide the credit, right? The coach, he's with the Hall of Fame quarterback or, you know, he uh, had inherited a good roster or whatever. So here's the questions I ask. Did the coach drive Super Bowl success in more than one place? Okay, did you go to two different places and get to the Super Bowl? Now, if you win it, I think that's important. But just getting there two different places is a real validator to me. Did the coach succeed with more than one quarterback? You know, I, I think... The quarterback is so important. So when you see a Joe Gibbs, right? I mean, he just had this great program. He went with three different guys. They're not even Hall of Famers, right? And right. so, you know, uh, a Holmgren goes with Favre, who was a great talent, but was picked off the scrap heap from in a trade from from Atlanta and develops him into a three-time MVP. And then he goes to the playoffs in Seattle with John Kitna. And then he, he makes Matt Hasselbeck a three-time Pro Bowler and goes to a Super Bowl. There's something going on there, right? right. <laughs> uh, even my, you know, Mike Shanahan went to the playoffs with John Elway, Brian Greasy, Jake Plummer, Robert Griffin III, right? He went to two different places. No one wins in Washington. He did. Right. Yeah. Um, no. Did the coach turn losing cultures into winning cultures wherever he went? I think that's that's huge. That's part of driving success in more than one place. And then I look at this. Was the coach directly involved in driving success in tangible ways, like developing the quarterback, calling the plays, innovating with scheme? How much are his fingerprints on this, you know? And sometimes that's from a personnel standpoint, right? Jimmy Johnson was buying the groceries or whatever. But um, when I when I put people through those tests, I mean, to me, Holmgren comes right up to the top. And I covered him, and you could say, well, Sando, you like Holmgren, but I think Shanahan <laughs> comes up there for sure, and having done that more than one place. And those are probably the two ones I would start with. And I think Coughlin to, to a degree, too. 
Yep, so. I agree with that. I think having had an office next to Mike Holmgren for a year, it only took me a few short weeks to figure out this guy really knows what he's doing. I think uh, those of us on the inside that see sometimes more than just numbers, it's an easier it's an easier case to make. Um, there's others in the same mix that haven't had the Super Bowl success, but that you mentioned, the Marty Schottenheimers, the Dan Reeves, the Chuck Knoxes. These, these guys have won a lot of games. I think Schottenheimer 200 wins, Reeves 190 wins, Knox 186 wins. And they have changed culture and turned around multiple teams as well. You know, Chuck Knox went from Buffalo to Seattle, um, both playoff teams, both on the edge. He had the Seahawks in 1983, had us one game from the Super Bowl. We played in the AFC Championship game. And in those cases, the rosters were what they were. You didn't have a chance to rebuild a team Per yep. personnel per se. You had to take players that were cast offs from someplace else and really rejected or cut. And back in those days to build a roster, I think it was even harder because there was no free agency. And they, like I say, the players just didn't move from team to team. So I don't think we give those old school coaches enough credit. Obviously, um, there are old school coaches that have had success all the way through um, Chuck Knowles, guys like that, that were the contemporaries of those three names I mentioned, but they had great rosters. I think Chuck Knox, not enough credit. Dan Reeves, not enough credit. Marty Schottenheimer, not enough credit. And won way too many games to not be included. And that's the fun thing about the new category, like you mentioned, that I don't know that you get to talk about those guys in this vein. And now you will. Yeah, and Reeves, you know, uh, tons of Super Bowls. I mean, he, he made it made it to four uh, Super Bowls with multiple teams and was also, I believe, the head coach GM. So, I mean, he was really... You know, responsible for to whatever extent you could um, build the team, and he did. He was in free agency era, uh, too. So, yep, great discussion. I think it's going to be fun to see some of those guys go in. And uh, it's funny looking at this list. There's some guys creeping up the win list, like Mike Tomlin, Pete Carroll, who are still coaching. So, it'll be interesting to see if they can get higher. And they've got the Super Bowls already, and I think have driven the cultural success. So, um, maybe they can extend the four-year window uh, to have this extra <laughs> slot. I hope so. Yes. Um, I think it's a great topic. Yep. Randy, I guess you and I, this, this wraps it up this time, and we'll, we'll see everybody next, uh, next week. Thanks, Mike. Enjoyed it.